there's a phenomena in the animal kingdom called imprinting. You might have heard of this. Imprinting is this critical time in the life of an animal, mainly birds and, 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 and mammals, but that they imprint on the first thing that they see and believe that it's their mother. And then they begin to follow that thing, whatever it is that they lay their eyes on first. Now, most of the time this works as God, you know, intended it to work because they, they look right at their actual uh, uh, parent. But on occasion, and particularly in countries where animals are kind of, you know, running and scurrying around together, not out in the wild, but they've been brought together, you'll see an animal imprint on another animal and then follow it around. For example, ducks do this. And you see it in countries where they call it baby duck syndrome. And the duck, the duck is born... And the duck looks at a dog, and the duck thinks it's a dog. And, the, dog, and the, the, the duck follows the dog around, and the duck does everything the dog does. As I was preparing for the sermon, reading about this phenomenon, I'm watching these videos. I'm just imagining my kids coming up and watching me you know, look on YouTube, looking at duck videos. Dad, what are you doing? I'm getting ready to preach a sermon, son. Excuse you. I've got to watch some more of these duck videos. But there's one of these stories... Uh, a duck imprinted on a collie, and, the, and the, a car came into the driveway, and the dog went out and was barking at the car, and the duck came out and was pecking at the tire, and uh, it's the phenomenon of imprinting. Now, um, we have been imprinted because we are born into a fallen world. We are born sinners, and we are born into a sinful world, and sin has been imprinted onto us. And so as we look at the culture around us and we grow up uh, in, in uh, Kitchener and Waterloo here as sinners born into a fallen world, we very naturally, like those little ducks, following and chasing things that are absolutely really not according to their design, um, we, we chase after them because of the condition of our own sinful nature and the nature of the fallen world that we've fallen into. We, we lie to protect ourselves. I mean, lying is not according to the design of God, but we do it. Uh, because it's kind of an imprint on us. And when we get threatened and we feel like we've got to somehow get out of a scenario and come out smelling like roses, we lie. This is what we do. We, um, you know, we, we can operate with greed. And our greed can cause us to live very inward-focused and small lives. Greed, and not just greed in terms of money, but greed in terms of building this you know, universe of comfort where we don't want anybody or anything to kind of impose on our comfort and on our lives. We can live these kind of greedy, self-centered lives. That's not natural according to God's design, but we do it because we've been imprinted on, you know, by sin in the world that, that we live in. And we can go on and on and on. We can make no commitments to somebody, not make a commitment to say, I will, I will promise to love you for the rest of your natural life, regardless of, regardless of, of what you do, I am going to commit and covenant to loving you. We can make no such commitment and then sleep with the person, have sex with them, gratify ourselves, tell ourselves, tell them that we love them. But we really haven't made any sort of a commitment to them. And that's not according to God's design, but that's natural. I mean, that's normal because we're like, well, you know, Paul, why are you being so archaic about this whole sex thing? I mean, why does sex have to look like, you know, a husband and a wife committed in a lifelong co covenant commitment? I mean, you're so archaic. Shouldn't you upgrade your theology and upgrade your view and your interpretation of the scriptures? No, what it is is it's God's got a way that he's created us to actually flourish. But because we've been imprinted by sin, we do this on and on. We gossip, for example. Gossip is an example where uh, we, we talk about other people to make ourselves feel better by comparison. So the more that I can shed a particular light on them, the better I'm looking to you in the conversation. And that's completely not, not natural in terms of God's design 
but we've been imprinted on sin, so we do this. And we could spend, you know, all morning talking about how different forms of our idolatry in our own hearts cause us to be like little ducks, and we just chase after stuff. We don't even know we're doing it. It just seems very normal to us. It seems like the most natural thing in the world. And if somebody was to say to us, why are you chasing after this thing like a little duck? Uh, we, would, we would be offended, and we would say, well, how dare you? Um, say that what I'm doing is somehow not, you know, what, how dare you say God would have a problem with this? This is the most natural thing. Well, it is natural in terms of the imprint of sin in our world. But so Paul, in his letter to Ephesians, which is where we're going to go this morning, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And Paul says that while we've been imprinted with this sin, God comes in by his grace and he radically saves us. And the grace that saves us is this earth-shaking, mind-blowing mercy coming toward you minus your merit. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything that that caused God to look down and go, I'm going to save that one because they're just amazing. He just, in his grace, he saved you. And then Paul says, but there's no way I can just articulate this grace to you so that you get it. I've got a, and so Paul, what we're about to read is Paul's prayer for Ephesus Because Ephesus was imprinted on sin, just like how you and I have imprinted on sin. And he's like, the only way for your heart to explode with the beauty of God's grace and actually want to stop chasing after and following that sin like a little duck and actually follow your Savior is that the grace that saved you begins to reform you. And so we come to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts opened, enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come and he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. So Paul tells Ephesus who they are in Christ, and he says, but I've got to pray for you that you can grasp this. Because I can't just articulate grace so that in your head you get it. There's got to be an explosion in your heart of the beauty of who you actually are so that you can actually live in the freedom and the enjoyment glorifying the one who saved you according to who you actually are. This is why he prays this way. Here's the sermon in a sentence. The hope of God calls you. The riches of God are secured for you. And the power of God is working in you. We're going to blow that out because that's what Paul just prayed. That's what he prayed for Ephesus. That's my prayer for us. That we would know the hope that we've been called to. That we would know the riches that have been assured to us. And that we would know that his power is working in us. And it's got to be something that the Spirit does in all of us that electrifies our hearts as we see Christ through this text. So let's look at this. He's making it very clear that the verbal rockets he launched in chapter 1 
are a thing that God did and a thing that God has to reveal. For example, I'm not going to go back into last week's sermon, but last week's sermon was all about those first 14 verses where Paul launches these verbal rockets. He says, you've been chosen, you've been predestined, you've been adopted, you've been blessed, it's been sealed by the Spirit. Before the foundations of the world, you can't wrap your mind around this, Ephesus. You can't wrap your mind around this, KW Redeemer. You can't understand it. It's so massive. I've got to now pray for you that you get the beauty of that. Right? And so that's the nature of what, what, Paul, what Paul is praying. Because he launches all of these verbal rockets about being saved by grace. And according to uh, Ch- Trevin Wax, who is a theologian and he's the senior editor of the Gospel Project, he says it this way. In Ephesians, Paul makes it clear that salvation is all of God, all from God, and all for God. And so it's very massive. And so Paul prays this prayer of enlightenment. No kidding. Right? You and I need the prayer of enlightenment too. I can't just get up here and articulate you into excitement for Jesus. That's something that's got to explode in your hearts. Paul knows that, so he prays this. Now, Ephesus has some striking similarities to KW. So here's a little history lesson, not for the sake of history lessons, but I think you're going to find this interesting. Ephesus was approximately 300,000 people, the historians estimate. KW is approximately 300,000 people. Ephesus was the leading trade center in the Roman Empire, and we are the you know, leading tech center in the Canadian Empire. Right? We're, we're Quantum Valley. We know this, right? Ephesus was a beautiful city. KW is a beautiful city. Ephesus was very sophisticated. We are very sophisticated. Ephesus was pluralistic. It had a mishmash of worldviews, all in the, uh, you know, operating within the realm of kind of uh, uh, Greek philosophy, where they would pontificate back and forth on different ideas. Very pluralistic. KW, very pluralistic. Ephesus, polytheistic, right? Many different gods. Not really sure which one's the right one, so worship all of them, right? KW, uh, polytheistic, you know, not really sure which god is the right one. So if you're of this religion or that one, that's fine, but don't say that you've got the truth because that's offensive, that's horrible, that couldn't be possible. We're, we're just like Ephesus. Don't, don't read the Bible with like a modern arrogance that we think we're somehow more sophisticated than they were in the ancient world. We're not. You know, we just have smartphones, which arguably have made us dumber, okay? So we're not more sophisticated. And so, you know, and, uh, you know, they were polytheistic, but in Ephesus, you know, they, they, they mainly worshipped, you know, Diana, the goddess of hunting. And here in KW, we worship Donaldson, the bringer of rain. We have, it's the same, lots of similarities here. And so we chase after, just like Ephesus did, we chase after all of these um, little mini messiahs, hoping that they'll fulfill us. And C.S. Lewis writes on the small gods and the mini messiahs, and he says something really interesting. Here's an excerpt from C.S. Lewis. This is what he says about us and our desires as, as humans, as Christians who, who uh, when we lose our, the, the, the beauty of the Savior. Here's what he says. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards that God promises to his children, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when finite, infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to make mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This is how we kind of describe our problem when we're not blown away by the grace of Christ. We're like little ducks. We just chase after other things that we're convinced, you know, are our parents. And uh, the gospel liberates us from that. So Paul goes on and he 
And he says in, in uh, verse 15, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a big deal to say to the Greeks, because that's saying you put all your weight on Christ, you put all your hope on Christ, you put all your chips on the grace of Jesus. And if you're in a polytheistic, pluralistic world, to put all of your hope in one thing is a big deal. So Paul starts out with that. But then in verse 17, you'll notice he uses this phrase. He says, oh, how do I convey this to you? How do I convey this to Ephesus? How do I get KW Redeemer to be so excited about the grace of Christ? So he prays and he says, the spirit of wisdom, knowledge and the revelation of God, right? He prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation knowledge. Now, historically speaking in the church, there's two ditches that we have fallen into as Christians on, on the spirit of wisdom and revelation knowledge and what we think that means. The first ditch would be the ditch of hyper-spiritualism. And that ditch looks like thinking that if you say, well, I have the spirit of wisdom or revelation, you think that means God reveals things to you. That's not what this text is saying. It, it, it flat out is very clear what God is revealing, and it's not things. God's not revealing things. But th that's kind of the ditch. It's not a personal insight. It's not, it's not vision. It's divine action. It says very clearly in the text, if you look down in verse 17, it says he's revealing himself. He's re he says the spirit of revelation and of wisdom and knowledge is God revealing himself. Right? He's, he's, he's not giving Holy Ghost life hacks. It's, it's, he's talking about himself. If the spirit of revelation, the spirit of God is, is speaking things to you, he's revealing in your heart the beauty of his love for you, of his saving grace toward you, of who he is for you, of how he is for you, with you, in your suffering. It is him revealing himself. But, the, uh, but that one ditch kind of shrinks it. And so when you think about it, because we've been imprinted into North American culture, North Americans, for the most part, want happy, healthy, wealthy lives. That's what North Americans want. And so it's very natural for us as little ducks chasing the wrong thing to think that the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge is, well, clearly now, since I was after a healthy, wealthy, comfortable life before, I now have God and all the angels of heaven behind getting me my comfortable, healthy, wealthy life. And so we want the Holy Ghost life hacks. You know, the Holy Spirit's going to reveal where all the best parking space is and where all the deals are. And, and what you should you buy the blue car or the red one? Your next bit, you know, your business decisions for Q2. This is what we think the Holy Spirit is up to. The text never goes there. It never goes there. Because it's wanting you to rest in something bigger. Now, the beauty of this, and I should qualify it, is that as the Spirit is revealing God to you and who he is for you, you actually extrapolate out of your sin, you start loving your Savior, and that makes you more teachable, whereby you now are living your life as parents, single people, students, business owners, employees, with a, with a greater degree of wisdom, integrity, um, uh, you know, uh, trustworthiness. You know, you're walking in the Spirit and all the things that you're doing. But this, this revelation is specifically God revealing himself. And the reason I'm taking the time to talk about this is because over the years as a pastor, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of confused kids who've grown up in homes of hyper-spiritualism. Because the kids are like, well, God doesn't talk to me like that. I've never heard God tell me, you know, you know, where, you know, what, what, you know, what pants to put on and what the next course is I should take. And I've never heard a, a booming voice from heaven. Well, maybe I don't hear God. And then they, it's a quick step to, well, maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe he's not real. Maybe people are just making this stuff up. This is where this goes. I've, I've had these conversations all the time, and I had two last week, right, where you're trying to extrapolate people out of this idea of, like, it's this internal voice revealing internal things to you. No, 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 no. Paul is saying, how do I get you to see the magnitude of this grace? 
I need the spirit of wisdom and of revelation knowledge to come upon you. So that would be, that would be the, the, the one ditch. And, and again, I bring that up because our kids are smart. You, these millennials, uh, you know, today, you know, they, they can fact check things in two seconds with their smartphones. And that's actually a good thing, a really good thing. Uh, because if you, you know, they're not buying it anymore like they used to back in the 80s with the rise of the hyper-spiritualism movement where they're like, okay, well then who is Warren Buffett and, uh, and Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and the other Forbes 500 guys praying to? I mean, who, where are they getting their Holy Ghost uh, divine downloads from? Because those guys seem to be doing pretty well. Right? And so the kid, it confuses the kids when they have enough emotional honesty to be like, I'm not sure I'm hearing God that way. So that's a ditch. But here's the other ditch. The, the other ditch is to say, okay, well, you know, well, we don't want to get into hyper-spiritualism. We don't want to get into emotion and feelings. So we're going to make emotions and feelings and experiences bad now. We're going to make that evil. We're going to say that the other ditch is knowing God is head knowledge. It's doctrinal accuracy. It's theological pontification of truths that are exposited with such pinpoint precision that nobody feels a thing. That's the other ditch. Let's not, let's not be emotional. Let's not say that there's an experience of God's presence and peace and hope in suffering when, the, when it hits the ceiling that I know in my heart that, oh, God is with me through this trial. We, we want to swing to this other ditch, not the hyper-spiritualism ditch, but this, you know, this theological robotic ditch that we say it's all about fact absorption. But the knowledge of God that Paul is praying for is not factual knowledge. He's not saying, oh God, would you reveal to Ephesus all of the points of my perfectly articulated doctrine? That's not, and I'm not saying that that's not important. My goodness, I don't whip up these sermons in five minutes because doctrine isn't important. It is, it, it is radically important. But what Paul is praying for us, would you explode in our hearts the reality of your grace that it actually transforms the little ducks so that they don't keep chasing all these things that are letting them down and causing them to be depressed and life catches on fire and they look across the street and they say, well, how come that one's okay and I'm not okay and now I'm a confused Christian? And God's like, how do I extrapolate Ephesus out of all of that? So that they just rest in the glory that is in Christ and they live truly human, truly flourishing, truly free lives. And so this is, this is Paul's prayer. So we're not, we don't want to swing into the other ditch and say that, you know, we're not going to experience God and we're not going to feel real peace or joy or hope or grace or strength because Christian faith is not emotionless intellectualism. It's not being stoic. That's not what Christian faith is. And Christian maturity doesn't, you know, make you like a mechanic who can take the engine apart and knows where all the pieces goes, but he's never driven through the country with the wind blowing in his hair. That's what happens when, when you, we can just kind of swing from the ditch of hyper-spiritualism into the other ditch of, okay, well then let's not feel, you know, let's not feel anything. And we're not, you know, we're not robots. We're not trans-reformers, you know. You know. Doctrine bots roll out. Well, that's not us. It's, no, we feel God does beautiful things in our hearts that liberates us from the pain and the suffering of the world that's around us. We do experience God, and he does do these things. And the eyes of our heart, that's why Paul uses the phrase, would the eyes of your heart be enlightened? Because the eyes is about an intellectual seeing, so the gospel does appeal to our intellect. But it's the heart, which is also this experiential feeling and knowing that you're in the, your life is in good hands. This week I was with Colton. I was at Toronto uh, Sick Kids Hospital, and I was there with with the Kipfers uh, during his surgery. It was an all-day surgery, and I was with uh, James and Holly and the family, and I asked Colton for permission to share this, so I'm not saying anything out of step. But, you know, 
and I went in after surgery, and he's there, and he's got the epidural from the neck down, and kind of barely moved, but he's with it, you know, and he's joking and he's laughing. And I, and I went in and he was there and he was talking with the nurse and he was complaining about how small his freeze he was. And, um, you know, he's just had his lungs extrapolated and he's complaining about this freezy. So I go over and I said to the nurse, I said, nurse, when this is all over, will he still have a sense of humor, you know? And uh, so Colton, Colton laughs and I pray for Colton, and my prayer for Colton is that he would know experientially this grace and this peace that his life is in God's hands. That while he serves the creator of the universe that is able to do miracles, the rest in the hope for Colton is that this life is not all that there is. This life, your hope can't be that this life is all that there is. And so Colton is actually, though he has hard days and dark days and scary times, and who of us wouldn't, quite frankly? But Colton uh, says to me, he's like, hey, my life is in God's hands. It's just rest, grace, peace. Not just, and he, Colton's not just spewing off this intellectual doctrinal knowledge of, of grace and the fact that, you know, he's got a great view of eschatology and that's why he's got peace in that bed. Though all those things could be true, he's just like, hey, look, you know what? I'm God's kid. All right? I'm God's kid. And, and uh, it's this, the beauty of that. That's something that only the Spirit can do. And so that's not to, I'm not trying to inflate Colton's great faith. I'm trying to inflate Colton's faith in a great savior. And the peace that it does for a young man laying in a bed who's battling for his life with cancer. And Jesus is in our rest. And his parents in our rest. What else can we do but to rest and be like, no, you know what? The beauty of, the beauty of saving grace is that it actually does truly reform our hearts and give us hope when life is hopeless. And so as we look at these three things about the hope that God's called us to, the riches of us that are secured for us in the power, let's look at why that's beautiful. Why did Paul pull that out? Because he uses the phrase, the hope of your calling. And when we as North Americans hear the word calling, we immediately think to vocation. What am I doing? What am I up to? What are you called to? What's your purpose in life? And Calling. That's what we think. When Paul is here appealing for them to go to calling, he's not saying, get your minds going right, right to the doing. Hope, or being hopeful, or being called to hope, which is what Paul is saying, that's a state of being. The hope of your calling, that's a, that's a, that's a whole place of being. It's a commentary on your heart, not your hands. I'm not saying that your hands aren't important and that we don't do things because we're hopeful, but that's not, where, that's not what Paul's up to with Ephesus. That's not their biggest problem. He's, he's calling them to, oh God, by your spirit, would you let them see this great hope? Because at its core, Christian faith is not about what I'm doing for God. It's about who I'm becoming in God. And this is what Paul's prayer is for Ephesus, and this is what my prayer is for all of us. Because as the hope in Christ changes who we are, of course that changes what we do. But it changes what we do, so that everything that we're doing, we're doing from hope. The way that Colton is... And the, and the kit for family face their day-to-day is from hope. And they can come out of that hope. The choices that you and I make in our day-to-day, in our lives, as parents, as single people, considering career paths, as, uh, as, as employers, as business owners, as employees, all of the decisions that you're making, they're just coming from a place of freedom and a place of hope. That your life is in God's hands. He's on the other side of every decision that you're making. You don't need to be paralyzed, you know, the whole old school, you know, paralysis by analysis, you know, prayer, or like if God doesn't give me a divine download on what to do next, I'm, I might be out of the will of God. Hope. You're standing in the will of God. 
You're in the will of God. That's what Ephesians 1 was all about. He rescued you. You didn't even know you needed rescuing. And he puts you right in God's will. And your life is in good hands. And now you live your life with this, this beautiful freedom. And so this is, everything is done from a position of hope. We, we build this church from a position of hope. We train our children in the ways of God from a position of hope. This week I read an article called Why Kids Are Leaving Church. And you read the whole thing and it scares you. And if you're a pastor, then it scares you even more, you know. Because, like, you know, pastors, we have the unique opportunity of laying in bed at night thinking about our churches, you know, all the time, every single night. And sometimes we worry and that's horrible. So pray for me because I'm a sinner. But also sometimes you just think about it with great hope. But you think about it all the time. And, uh, and you know, I read that article, Why Kids Leave, 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 uh, leave Church. And then I remember when I was in 90s, it gave me a flashback in the 90s at youth conferences where the youth guy got up at the stage and he looks out at all of us and he says, The church is always one generation away from extinction. You must go into your high schools and preach the gospel of Jesus. Right? And by the end of that, I'm like, if it's going to be, it's up to me. You know, I am the savior now. Oh my God. All right. Now, so if I read that article this week on why kids are leaving church, and then I had that trigger moment and took me back to that youth conference where it was like, get out there and share Jesus. Otherwise it's all over because it's all on you and there's no saving grace. It's all human action. That's saving your city. If I flipped into that zone, uh, then I would start operating not out of hope, but out of fear. So instead of nourishing you with Jesus so that your heart is so thankful for grace, you want to teach the gospel to your kids. You want to sit down at some point in your lives when it suits you to be like, you know, hey, little Johnny, let me read the Bible to you and teach you God's word and God's law so that you're not like a little duck that just goes chasing after all these things your whole life, just perpetually these little idols that keep letting you down. You'll want to do that as parents. Rather than me getting up here and going, church, I read an interesting article this week. It's called Why Kids Are Leaving Churches. And I just thought that as part of my sermon, I would read it for you to scare the hell out of you so that those of you who are lazy and never, ever read your Bibles and never read them to your children will get up and leave KW Redeemer today with a new resolve of spiritual discipline to to train your children in the word of God. You understand? Hope. What is the hope of our calling? of which we've been called. And then what does that hope end up producing in us and through us and out of us? It's beautiful. And so that's why verse uh, 18, Paul says, open the eyes of their hearts because everything Christians do flows from the hope of what was done. And there's no power like that. It's the Spirit's work. Again, he's praying the Spirit would do this. And there's a beautiful parallel. Think of creation. The Spirit is hovering over darkness and death. God speaks, let there be light, and there's light and there's life. Creation. You and I are dead in our sin. And the Spirit is hovering over our dead spirit. And as the gospel gets preached, the let there be light gospel is spoken. And as you and I hear it, what was dead, because the Spirit is now hovering over doing his working, he saves us by grace. The Spirit's work at creation is the Spirit's work at recreation. God created everything by grace, and God is recreating you and I 
by grace. And Paul is praying that our hearts would explode with the beauty of that because that brings us to this beautiful place of rest because the gospel is the great eye-opener that the only thing you and I are bringing to the table is the sin that necessitated our need for a savior. And when we rest in the beauty of the gospel and all that means, God begins to do beautiful things in our hearts. And so secondly, after the hope that we've been called to, he talks about these riches that are secured. And again, we have to we need the Spirit to reveal this to us because otherwise you'll come on a Sunday morning and I'll be like, your inheritance in glory, church. And I'll use all this theological language and you'll, go, you'll be like, mm, yes, my, my inheritance in glory. So on Monday, we have to do our laundry and we have to get groceries and I've got this real problem at work that's just giving me a migraine, right? That's what we do because that's the world that we live in. So in a sense, unless the Spirit does a work in your heart, talking about the assurance of your inheritance is kind of like this thing that what we end up as, you know, again, little ducks that imprinted on sin that are mesmerized with the here and now, what we end up doing is we kind of go, yeah, yeah, that's really nice. Okay, so basically, you know, the Bible's message is, hey, don't worry, God's going to restore everything, but it sucks to be you today. And that's not the gospel at all. That's why Paul prays this prayer. Notice the flow of Ephesians. If you were here last week, if you weren't, you could listen to it online. But Ephesians 1, he drops the bombs. And now here, before he even moves on, he's like, and now I just got to pray. Oh, God, by your spirit, would you electrify their hearts that they get the beauty of this? Because then as I go and I begin to talk about this life of freedom and the life of flourishing and the hope in the gospel and how the gospel causes for you to, to never be at the mercy of circumstance in your life, but to actually go with this beautiful hope and grace through whatever life brings, Paul's like, before we talk about that, oh God, would you by your spirit reveal this to them? The riches of the glorious inheritance. This is what he's talking about, what those riches are. It's this life of Christian freedom. And that's why he says that the inheritance, he always talks about it past tense. It's assured it's not pending. It's not pending on how great, great of a Christian you are. The reason why it's important that Paul keeps on hammering this is because it's sitting in the realization that your poor Christian performance and my poor Christian performance are not erasing our inheritance. That does something in you because nothing else in your life works that way. The gospel is the only thing in your life that gives you the verdict before your performance. Nothing else in your life gives you the verdict before your performance. The gospel does. Says, that's why Paul goes, assurance. I'm anchoring your assurance in Christ, his work done, because you don't, nothing else works like that. Stop performing at work. Let me know how that works. Right? Stop performing. If you're an employee, let me know. Let me know how that works. Right? Stop, stop actively you know, loving your spouse. Let me know how that works. Stop actively you know, nurturing and working uh, and, and, and cherishing and training your children. Let me know how that works. There's just nothing in this world that we can just say, it's finished. It's done. Nothing is like that. The gospel says it's done. And now you're living from the freedom and the enjoyment of knowing that something's actually done. The gospel doesn't make us lazy. It makes us loyal. An awakening in your heart of the beauty of that grace doesn't say, oh, beautiful. Then I guess I'll just live indifferent to Jesus. It makes you say, no, how do I live more to his glory? And that's why Paul starts here. He goes, this is a pretty big deal. Because Paul, Paul's theology is not, if you obey, then God blesses you. It's because God already blessed you, you're free to obey. And he rolls that through all 13 epistles. And because Paul is an expert in the law, it's a pretty big deal that he talks that way. And so grace does this beautiful thing. It frees us. Why is this whole business of your inheritance being assured for you a big deal? Because if, you don't re if the Holy Spirit doesn't reveal that to you, you'll be like a little duck running around trying to build a comfortable life. The problem with building a comfortable life is people who are suffering and hurting and needy don't fit into your comfortable life. Ever. 
And so what happens is you and I end up living, we end up building, you know, this idolatrous wall called comfort. And whatever I can do um, to, to just keep my life as comfortable as possible, and whatever I have to shove out of it, that's not comfortable, and that's going to end up being people. We can't live the, the, the beautiful, freeing life of loving our neighbor. Which what, when you boil God's law down, it's loving God with everything in us and loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. But I don't do that, neither do you. Because I'm pretty committed, like a little duck chasing, because I imprinted on comfort, North American comfort, of like pushing things out of my life that are like a threat to my comfort. And Paul's like, there's no way for us to just like, you know, articulate and intellectualize our way out of this. We need a work of the spirit to say, yeah, you know what? I'm okay. I don't have to, all of my time and all of my resource and all of my energy and all my everything doesn't have to be mine and me and my family. I can actually give my life away in whatever form that kind of, you know, looks like for your family. But you're free. You're free to do it. And finally, as I close, I close with this. He says that the power is working in you. The final part of his prayer was he wants you to know God's power working in you. And then he says some pretty, pretty bold things. Because he says the power working in you is the power that raised Christ from the dead. That's his argument in uh, 19 to 20. The same power that resurrected Christ is working in you. What is that power actually doing? That's a big, that's a big statement. And you and I can't just go, hmm. I've just come to intellectual assent, and I agree that the resurrection power of God is working in me. Amen and amen, the word of the Lord. Right? We can't intellectualize that. We need the spirit of God to be like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. If the power that resurrected Christ is actually working in me, then that means that the spirit is actually reforming me. He's doing something with that imprint. I've been imprinted by sin, and I have this sin nature. But then God saved me by his grace and now the resurrection power of Christ is now resurrecting something in me. A new, a new nature that I've been given because I'm united to Christ. So Paul uses all this language. Christ is above all things. Why is he saying that? It's, he's, not just, he's not just talking about Christ's position. He's highlighting your union. If Jesus is actually that powerful, Jesus is actually that big a deal. And the power that raised him from dead is in you and me. That means that there is a very real and beautiful work that God is doing in our hearts. And how does he do it? He does it as Christ has preached to you and I. He does it as he always did it. As Christ was being preached, the Holy Spirit fell. Christ is being preached, the Holy Spirit fell. Christ is being preached, the Holy Spirit fell. Now you and I have the Holy Spirit inside us. And the Holy Spirit's work today in recreation is the same as it was in creation. And as we come and as we gather and as we worship, as we confess our sin, as Christ has preached, the Spirit inside you is resurrecting and doing this beautiful reforming work. And, he's, and he is exchanging uh, the love that we have for our sin with a love for a Savior. And in the words of Ray, or Ray Ortland, Christ preached as the smelling salts under our noses. Let's close in prayer.